They're coming to get you, Barbara. Keep watching the sky. Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. Don't fall asleep. I want to play a game. The blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. Children of the night, what music they make. Good evening, ladies and germs, and welcome back to Saturday Night Spookorama, the podcast examining the history of horror films from the golden age to the modern day. I'm coming to you live in crystal clear spookasonic audio from our luxury studio and the mysterious curiosity shop you never noticed being down this alley before. I'm your host, Thad Kelly, and with me as always are my co-hosts, Justice Hepburn. Hey! Sabrina Gall. Hey, guys. And Alex Kump. Why am I always last? <laughs> yeah, I'm always last. <laughs> yeah, actually, Barnes is always last. Uh, and speaking of Barnes, it's our Star Wars producer, Mr. Andrew Barnes. Hey, everyone. This is episode three, and tonight we're starting another deep dive into a seminal year for horror films. It's 1932, and Drac is back. We're taking a look at two successors to the previous year's smash hit, Dracula. First, it's Dracula director Todd Browning's follow-up, the controversial lightning rod cum counterculture phenomenon, Freaks. Then we'll be taking a look at Danish art house director Carl Theodor Dreyer's vampire flick, Vampire. How's it going, guys? Still a ghost. Yeah. Still a ghost. Excellent. I'm, you know, <laughs> some things, some things never change. I have to rewire my yeah. basement because you bought a bomb Ethernet cable. That's true. But I bought it. So how about that? Uh, well, guys, I'm doing good this week. I'm ex- I'm actually really excited for this episode. Are you guys excited? Fuck yeah. I spent this week um, becoming haplessly trapped in a gay pride parade. Uh, so that was <laughs> I've fun. I've trained you so well. I, I went through a, a series of mistakes that would seem contrived if it were in a, a comedy, uh, and I ended up, um, uh, yeah, stuck in Worcester's Gay Pride Parade. Uh, a nice man gave me some beads, uh, and uh, yeah, that's that's basically what I've done this week. Wait, so were you Great. in the parade? No, no, I was I was on the, exactly one block where they decided to just stop traffic and hold everyone there, <laughs> and the and the parade just went by me. Um, did I, you have to? The real question here: Did you have yeah. to show your tits to uh, to get the beads? You know, they didn't make me go through it, but I got a lot of uh, compliments on my bow tie. Mm. Uh, okay, mm. okay. I don't know um, what that signals, if anything, but. Uh, when I was a kid, we were uh, driving to visit family somewhere, and somehow my parents and I and my sister took a wrong turn, and we ended up being a car in a Puerto Rican parade parade. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Whoops. Well, I'm glad you could celebrate your heritage. <laughs> uh, cool. Well, you know, should we uh, should we jump right in? Yeah. Let's get it. You got All it. Right. So first up is. Freaks. Alex, would you like to tell us uh, about the plot of Freaks? So, Freaks <laughs> opens up with a carnival barker selling a freak show, and one freak in particular who is the uh, main terrifying attraction to see. So a bunch of people are crowded around the box, but we never get to see what's inside. Uh, the barker starts telling a story about this freak that we haven't seen yet, and uh, then the rest of the movie is pretty much an entire flashback about how this freak became a freak. Uh, so we're introduced to the freak show, and a lot of the beginning of the film is a lot of vignettes about the performers living their lives and interacting with each other. Um, you know, there's some conjoined twins who uh, are, one of them is seeing a guy, you know, one of the, uh, the bearded lady gives birth. So there's a lot of, like, things kind of happening, but the main plot deals with the relationship of Hans and Frida, who are two uh, little people who are engaged to be married performers in the uh, freak show. Cleopatra who is a trapeze artist who uh, is a non-freak. Um, I don't know the least offensive way to say that, but uh, who is who is uh, just a traditional woman. Um, uh, normie. A normie. She's a normie, thank you. Uh, who's some fucking normie. So uh, in comes uh, trapeze artist Cleopatra, who's a fucking normie, and she starts flirting with Hans, and their relationship starts to develop, and uh, we find out that Cleopatra is actually working with a, a strongman of the circus, whose name is Hercules, in order to get Hans's large inheritance. 
so eventually Hans and Cleopatra get married, and at the wedding feast everyone gets a little drunk, and Hans gets a little poisoned. And uh, in the most iconic moment from the film, everyone in the freak show starts the chant, which is, we accept her, we accept her, one of us, one of us, gooba gobble, gooba gobble. Uh, and it's their way to welcome Cleopatra into their makeshift family. Uh, she starts freaking out because she's drunk and terrible, and she's very rude to them and generally ruins everyone's night. Everyone leaves, goes home for the night. Hans gets sicker because he got poisoned, and Cleopatra's pretending to take care of him, but she's actually trying to kill him even more. The performers know that something's up, and eventually they confront her and Hercules on a rainy night. They attack them and presumably kill Hercules. There's a now-lost scene that shows them castrating him, but that is lost, so we didn't watch it, I guess. And uh, <laughs> then they close in on Cleopatra, and we return back to our framing device, which is the carnival barker, and they show us that in the this box with the freak is actually Cleopatra, who was tarred and feathered, and is a hot fucking mess. And thus ends the tale of the freaks. Thank you very much. Thank you, Thad. Well done. Well done. Oh my god, thanks, yeah. guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, so that's freaks. To say that this film was controversial in its time would be something of an understatement. It, it's probably the most controversial film of the 30s. I don't know. I, I, can anyone think of something else that's more so? I don't know. Triumph of the Will? Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. Non-Nazi films? Yeah, non-Nazi oh, yeah. American <laughs> film. American film. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the contemporary audiences at the time found it to be uh, completely repulsive. Uh, apparently, one uh, woman in a test My favorite story. said that it gave her a miscarriage, <laughs> uh, which is pretty extreme. Um, and, uh, yeah, so the uh, MGM who produced the film cut uh, a large portion of it, uh, around 30 minutes of footage. The original film was a 90-minute picture, uh, and the final version was only 64 minutes, which is very short, for at least for a modern feature. Uh, and so then they hoped that by cutting what was the most sort of gruesome, controversial stuff, which I imagine was most of the, the sort of finale, uh, the film would play better, but it, once it was released, it also elicited intense... Uh, disgust, uh, and it actually basically destroyed director Todd Browning's career. He only made a couple movies after this. A little bit later, in the 60s, uh, the movie was sort of rediscovered, and people watched it, and they realized, oh, wait, like, no, this is actually about how, you know, the normal people are the real monsters, uh, and it became this this really big counterculture sort of movie. Uh, you know, I think uh, Gooba Gobble shows up in a Ramones lyric you know, it inspired oh, yeah. all, you know, all these uh, sort of works of art. And uh, it's it's really been vindicated by history. I, I can't think of a movie that had the kind of reaction it, it did upon its release and is now so widely revered. So, yeah, what did we, th what did we think of uh, Freaks? I fucking love this movie. I, I think that um, I need to pull up her name because I, I don't know it off the top of my head. But um, the actress who played Frida is phenomenal. Uh, there's, like, the, sh the whole Jolene scene where she goes and is like, hey, uh, listen, Cleopatra, could you not marry the guy I love? And she's like, no. And then, like, for the rest of the film, you just get these shots of her just, like, staring with such intense sadness at all the things that she knows is happening, but, like, Hans won't listen to her. And it is just fucking great. Yeah, there's a lot of great performances. Uh, Daisy Earls. Daisy Earls, yeah. A lot of great performances um, throughout the cast. Um, I thought that Johnny Eck, uh, the half-boy, the guy with yeah. uh, with no legs who walks around on his uh, on his hands, is is actually he was a great actor. Uh, you know, he he's he's one of my favorites uh, among the. Um, Sideshow performers, and uh, I, I think that they actually put in really great performances all around. Very, you know, not just sort of showing off whatever you know trick they would do or or whatever, uh, but uh, you know, some some very uh, uh, charismatic, uh, emotive stuff, which I guess you need to be able to do if you're a if you're a performer like that. Yeah, no, I I really loved all the uh, the little side stories there. I um like especially the the conjoined twins. Um, yeah. And their 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 husbands who who um just really oh you know one one of them being of course the abusive asshole 
one, <laughs> and the other one just, and the other one much kinder, but he also who also owned the circus. I couldn't, I I couldn't tell. Um, yes, <laughs> but um, that was that was really great to just see how these these two girls exist so together but separate. Yeah, yeah, and there's a lot of sort of a lot of the movie is just that. S- like you said in uh, your summary, Alex, those vignettes, um, the slice of life stuff, which is very sort of uh, ambitious artistically for this time. You don't see that in movies very much. I was thinking actually of, um, this is maybe a weird comparison, but uh, uh, Mean Streets, the Scorsese movie. Um, You're you're right, that is weird. uh, (laughs) No, but just that so much of, of that movie is just like, Here's stuff that these characters do. Here's situations that they're in. And, like, the plot only starts rolling, you know, sort of gradually it coalesces uh, out of that, out of those sort of scenes where Scorsese was drawing on uh, Italian neorealism, you know, which is obviously a much later artistic movement from this. But this movie, even in a short runtime, takes a while to get going. And a lot of what you see is these people existing in, you know, and it's... It's a, a lens into their life. Yeah, I thought I thought that was interesting because I I hadn't seen this movie before watching it for this and watching it I wasn't quite sure if I could classify it as a horror movie. Like I know we're watching it for this horror movie podcast, but like yeah, so much of it is those little vignettes that are just like slice of life, and it turns into a horror movie at the end. But like what ninety percent of it is pretty straightforward. It is very unique because it's a horror movie, but the people who are framed as the you know the the monstrous killers are the ones you're yeah. rooting for. <laughs> no, yeah, and that's the other thing. You know the 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 uh, the the people crawling through you know the rain and mud, uh, yeah. you know with weapons uh, chasing down these unarmed people. Those are the heroes, and you you want them to get them. <laughs> yeah, it's more like Death Wish than like a classic horror movie. It's like yeah. <laughs> Murder. Wish in a circus. <laughs> my, my favorite thing about this movie is just how smart it is from, like, start to finish. From, like, starting with the dialogue, there's a lot of really great... Uh, in all the vignettes, you know, there's a lot of very smart uh, writing. There's a lot of jokes that uh, are about the performers and their differences, but are never at the expense of them. Yeah, there, there's one or two that are a little like yeah, that. they have that aged a little bit, but like uh, but I for think the most my, part, you're right. Yeah, like my favorite is uh, when they uh, someone was talking to um, forget the character's name, but it was uh, Josephine Joseph, who was the intersex performer who played mm-hmm. the half man, half woman, and there's this great part where like uh, you know she walks away and they're like, oh, I think she likes you, but he doesn't, and it's a really great like. You know, it's it's about what's going on. It's very personal to the character, but it's not at the expense of her. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, if there's one thing this movie does, it's it's show tremendous, um, you know, empathy uh, towards these people. Which, uh, you know, reading the the contemporary reviews, uh, but the audiences at the time just had no clue about what seems so obvious to us now. At least me watching this, you know, where where our sympathies lie. There was a, a review at the time which literally said, uh, this film cannot be taken seriously because no normal person would sympathize with a dwarf. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Uh, yeah, and I mean, I think uh, part of sort of the unique touch and the, the unique sort of uh, empathy of the film comes from Todd Browning's own experiences because he had been uh, in a traveling circus as a young man, and it shows because he had made several circus movies before. He had a, a long history of collaboration with Lon Chaney Sr. before Lon Chaney died in 1930, uh, and some of those movies were circus movies. Uh, as, so, for instance, he made in 1925 The Unholy Three, uh, which starred Lon Chaney and also Harry Earls, who was Hans in Freaks, and then uh, in 1927 he made... The Unknown, uh, which is also stars Lon Chaney as an armless knife thrower, uh, and uh, amusingly also starred Joan Crawford. Yes. Really? Jeez. Yeah. Sort of their their most famous collaboration was... Uh, all these films were from M- for MGM, 
and uh, also topping that out was a an early called whatever you want mystery old dark house proto horror movie called London After Midnight, uh, which is uh, a lost film and it's one of the most sought after lost films. What I want to talk about, which I think is really interesting, that we haven't really talked about, is horror, when you look at it kind of like from a broader perspective over time, what is being represented as terrible and horrifying changes based on like the climate of you know whatever country that it's being made in. Uh, and when we start in the 1930s, we're getting a lot of these monster movies. You, we haven't you know gotten the slasher flick, we haven't gotten any like suspense horror, it's all just monster movies, and I think what's really, yeah. really smart about Freaks is that it takes that and subverts it very strongly. Absolutely. Yeah, no, those, the, the air of the film is something that you, you, know, you see in more modern-day movies, which made it reasonably easy to watch as a modern viewer. I say that even, even though it was, it was not my favorite movie. I, I, I just I have a really hard time when uh, act, actors and actresses look so similar, and I got both. I, I was I got so confused with Venus and Cleopatra. They were oh just my god, two, they were oh, just yeah. two blonde ladies, and <laughs> they were both in love with different people. And uh, one of them's evil. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you don't you don't, it doesn't matter that she's blonde. It's <laughs> just. Uh, <laughs> And no, so that's that's more of a personal issue, I suppose. But it it just it was it was well put together. I uh, just wish I found the plot a little sooner. Just it it, it was suddenly the suddenly the plot was there, and then uh, but it where it hadn't been twenty five minutes prior. Yeah, I found it kind of meandering too. Like I was I was interested, but I wasn't like gripped by all the the vignette stuff. I don't mm-hmm. know. Um, speaking of the vignettes, here's a question. So the the Frozo uh, Venus uh, romance is an important part of the film, kind of. Uh, it takes up a reasonable amount of screen time, and I absolutely understand the reason it is in the movie. Um, but do you think it's necessary? Do you think it adds much to the film? Honestly, I don't really remember much of the content of it. I remember that it happened, but otherwise I'm like, meh. It's yeah, it's kind of it's kind of weird. It um feels like it's trying to be a understandable love between normies and not um to like contrast the uh, the freak love in the that's uh, that's uh, starring. Um, I uh yeah, I mean, I wanted to pose the question. Um, I you know, I'm not trying to lead an answer there. I, I found it charming. Um, I'm not sure that it adds a ton to the movie. Uh, but I, you know, I I liked both of those characters, and at the end when you know they're in danger, I you know I was like, oh no, you know, don't die, um, you know, and, and uh, I mean, you know, that sounds goofy, but that's I mean, we're we're in year number two of our uh, history, but that's one of the stronger emotional attachments I've had to this, uh, to one of the movies, so uh, it helped it to be not such a clinical exercise, which. Um, I'm trying not to make this be, but um, I think I I think that it was actually good. Mm-hmm. Um, having it in there, uh, it did probably take up a little too much screen time, but having it in there and then those two characters have nothing to do with the plot at all. Basically, uh, yeah, the, the, the plot is solved entirely through the actions of not the two random normies. Like in, in a worse movie, they'd have been the protagonists. In this movie, they're not. They're just they're they're just window dressing. No, I can totally appreciate that. I think that's a that is a good way of putting it for sure. Aside from the setting and uh, you know the original inspiration for the movie, uh, this was a a big passion project for Todd Browning. I think he'd been working on it in one form or another since about 1927. Uh, and after the success of Dracula, which he had made for Universal, he was brought back to MGM. And uh, Irving Thalberg, who was the, the head producer at MGM at the time, literally told him, make something that will top Frankenstein. I think in a, in a way he succeeded, though obviously no one appreciated it at the time. But um, aside from sort of the inspiration and the setting, and, uh, or you know, is there anything you want to talk about in terms of direction, cinematography? Um, also, I want to put in that Todd Browning was the original Juggalo, uh, and this is the Dark Carnival. <laughs> All right, whatever. Did you take your irony pills today? <laughs> Cure your brain disease? No, I didn't. Uh, so, direction, cinematography. 
Um, I really liked uh, the shots inside inside all the the uh, cabins. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, it was it was really cool to. Um, I mean, I guess a little bit of this is set dressing, but it, it was cool to see like things proportionate to say the size of the size of the actors. Um, but also see how like each one we get to we get to see into is personalized. And, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then and, uh, and then of course yeah. like the just the the shot itself, the shot themselves are creative. I liked all the uh, to, towards the end of the movie once the once the freaks have started their their revenge plot. All the lighting gets really really good. Ooh. And I'm thinking specifically of the scene where where Cleopatra is going from from Hans's trailer to hers, and they're just all under the stairs, and you can just barely see them. You can just barely like see their faces, and it's that's so good, so good. There's some uh, there's some excellent like horror movie shots, mm-hmm. like especially oh, yeah. with all of them under the wagons. Like, yeah. I mean, it's different in this movie because they're actually the heroes, but uh, <laughs> like that's you can see that in like like modern movies. Um, I think, yeah, actually, oh, I think. Uh, that's what I only just put it together. I'm pretty sure a bunch of those shots with the the freaks going through the mud at the at the climax of the movie. I'm pretty sure those shots are literally in the first Lord of the Rings movie. I think yeah, I think those are <laughs> those exact shots happen again with orcs. Which you know, take that as you will. <laughs> yeah, uh, let's. I would like to use that as a kind of jumping off point to talk about this film's legacy. Yeah, because it's everywhere. Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, even the phrase "one of us" is like, uh, even if you don't know where it's from, you fucking heard that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was gonna uh, bring up my only real like direct point of reference for this film is uh, American Horror Story did an entire season based on this movie. Uh, mm-hmm. for the most part, it just kind of reminded me of all of the different places that you see this film it's still referenced today. This film is, what, 80, 90 years old? Math is hard. I studied theater. Uh, and just watching this film and being like, oh, this costume, this character, this line, I've seen it before. The most recent uh, Trios of Horror episode of The Simpsons just did the, a whole section of it on this movie. And it's just amazing to see that a film like this is still something that is culturally relevant. Yeah, I mean, I think probably of all, maybe not all, but uh, this has got to be high up on the films we're going to watch from this era in terms of how relevant it is. I mean, people know, you know, what, whatever, The Mummy is or, or, or stuff like that. And, and uh, you know, I don't want to downplay those sorts of movies, but I, this is a film that I, I not to... Um, no spoilers, but I'm definitely going to recommend to even a general audience today. I mean, it's an hour long. What do you have to lose? Yeah, Wait, I, are, you, are you saying that The Mummy is not a historical treasure? Uh, oh, The Mummy is a very good movie that I like quite a bit, but uh, I would say that uh, there's a little bit more than maybe a contemporary <laughs> audience could get out of uh, Freaks. Oh my god, yeah. The Mummy is one of my favorites. You, you're hurting me. <laughs> Um, I would I would say that this is the first and probably the first for a while of the films we're going to watch that is legitimately great. You know, we have there's a lot of films that we appreciate or that are good, but this is all around a very skillfully made, intelligently made, very well produced and acted and arted film. Yeah, I'm not going to argue with about about that. Yeah. No, I would agree, but I also think the other movie we're discussing today is pretty dang great. So, yeah. You know. mm-hmm. Hey, good segue, but not quite yet, because I want to keep... <laughs> no, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, in terms of, just to go... Uh, this is actually has nothing to do with direction, but in terms of the production design, the film is very sort of spare-looking, with the exception of the exteriors, and I mean, you know, uh, mostly in the finale, but also when, when they're playing in the woods in the beginning. Um, but anything inside the circus is obviously shot on soundstage, which almost all these movies are. Uh, but it's sort of very spare, um, which gives it a unique sort of feeling. I, I don't know. It's not the the huge sort of baroque, opulent sets of something like Dracula. It's very, um, I, I don't know, it's, it's very minimalistic, I guess, which is interesting. Yeah, no, I liked how we... 
like outside of a couple shots early on, we never really see any of the people who work at the circus performing. It's all the backstage yeah. stuff. It's all behind the curtain. Like just yeah. assuming that the people going to see this in 1932 had been to a circus and now it's like you're seeing what really goes on. Yeah. Like and that's that. a quality that's that's sort of theatrical as well. You know, that's yeah. a uh, something like a play would be like that. But uh, yeah, of course... Um, as I mentioned before, this movie's contemporary reception was incredibly disastrous, and MGM basically tried to bury it, uh, and it really ruined Todd Browning's career. He would only make a handful of movies after this, uh, one of which was called Mark of the Vampire, which was a remake of London After Midnight. That was in 1935. And ironically, um, as we talked about in episode one, uh, Lon Chaney was probably meant to play Dracula, and the role went to Bela Lugosi. And in Mark of the Vampire, Bela Lugosi plays Lon Chaney's part from uh, London Oof. After Midnight, which is sort of amusing. Uh, but uh, he would make uh, one more horror film after that, uh, which I suspect we may watch, because it's in sort of a dry spell uh, for horror films, uh, and that's Devil Doll in 1937. And then he made his final film in 1939, uh, and for the last 30 years of his life, he never directed another picture. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah, he did live to be like 90, but yeah, because this movie oh, only he, like only made back like a third of what it um, what was spent on it, I believe. Yeah, which is uh, uh, pretty that. shitty. Yeah. So before we move on, guys, would you recommend Freaks? Um, I mean, I I know that I didn't like it all that much, but I would definitely recommend. I I would recommend it to a friend. I thought it, you know, there's there's enough going on that was enjoyable. That, yeah, I think it's I think it's worth a watch. I would agree, with Sabrina. It's a very uh, well made, very intelligent film. Uh, if you're into horror movies, definitely, definitely, I would say check it out. Uh, if you're not into horror movies, I'd say still check it out because it doesn't really feel like most a horror movie for. 99% of the film, but it's just a historical landmark in film. Yeah, I agree. I'd say it's, you know, interesting and important enough to really deserve to be watched by, you know, pretty much anyone. Yeah, uh, definitely watch it. It's, <laughs> uh, it's an amazing movie, and it's, uh, like you said, it's only 60 minutes long. <laughs> yeah, I, I have no excuse. You have no excuse. I think uh, I uh, you got my opinion earlier on. Uh, I would recommend it wholeheartedly. I like this movie quite a bit. All right, Alex, you want to do that uh, that segue? I was going to, like, do it a little more organically, um, but I guess I won't now. Uh, no, I think uh, one of the really great things that links vampire, vampire, however we're going to fucking say it today, and freaks is they both really shunned that traditional Hollywood aesthetic. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. Uh, Vampire did decide, make a conscious decision to save money to film everything on location. They didn't use sound stages, so you know that had that very real, naturalistic look. And conversely, uh, Freaks, which you know did film on a Hollywood studio lot, didn't have those sort of like super elegant painted backdrops and giant, amazing, huge castle sets. It was all very sparse. Yeah. Um, so I guess if we're going to get into vampire, and nobody else has to pronounce it that way, I just like being <laughs> a douche, we should probably talk about the plot, since I found yeah. out last episode that that's important. So Sabrina, <laughs> would you like to uh, summarize the plot of this film? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a little long, because there's a, there's a lot going on, but uh, I think the best way to, talk, to like, start talking about the plot is to uh, talk about the structure of the movie. Um, you know, most of these movies we've watched uh, start with start with some sort of uh, title card, letting us know, what, giving us a little context. Um, this movie was uh, shown in three different languages, so it was 
there's a, this most of the scenes have very little dialogue and um, so most of the information we get about characters or about uh, or about the pl- or about the plot or what's something that's being read on screen is shown through uh, through title cards. Um, so the movie starts with a really brief description of our of our main character who's named Alan Gray. Um, he's traveling to learn about ghosts and spooks and vampires and things of the sort. Um, he winds up in a small village in France, uh, stays at the local inn in the middle of the night. He's super spooked by um, by a spooky old man and, and and then awoken by another spooky old man um, <laughs> who leaves behind a, a package um, that says, to be opened after my death. Um, and says uh, she must not die. Our our protagonist Alan Gray, you know, goes out goes out and about and is um, sees these detached shadows, which are really cool, by the way. Um, yeah, sure, we'll talk. Really... <laughs> yeah, we'll talk. We have to talk about those later. But <laughs> um, he sees this sees this man and his two daughters. Um, the the man he saw the the night prior, um, the package and and the spooky message. Um, but he sees that his, uh, he's with his daughters, and they're looking looking really ill, and um, he is killed. He, so we see him die. Um, Alan opens up his package, sees that it's a it's a book. It's called a uh, the History of Vampires. Um, so here we have a title card. This give or you know we're shown the book, and we uh, we read about just really general vampire facts. Nothing nothing new or unusual. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah no, just it's, it's sort of an overview, you know. It's for a sort of a layman, you know, vampire facts. <laughs> I mean, but that's actually true. <laughs> yeah, we're we're assuming not every. Uh, we're gonna assume that all of our listeners know about vampire facts, uh, and we can say that this is a generic vampire. <laughs> so the we have our two daughters um, who are named uh, Leon and Giselle, and. Oh, we find a Giselle out in the out in a field who's all passed out, um, and a doctor comes by and says Giselle needs blood. And Alan, as the only uh, uh, non-servant and uh, not sick individual, um, agrees to donate. He rests. We continue to get more information about about vampires from a servant reading the book. Um, learn about how vampires can be killed. And that a vampire who has bitten, bitten its host is um, basically in control, trying to get their eternal soul sent to hell. Kind of cool, though. Um, Alan yeah, that's a interest. It's pretty metal. Yeah. Alan is awoken by the servant and uh, keeps Leon from uh, taking the poison that's been left by her bedside by this doctor. And Alan's shadow separates from his body in... This this really cool scene, and he like is trying to find out where he is. Um, so he goes to the doctor's house and finds his body in a coffin. Um, and this uh, and Giselle, the other daughter, um, tied to a bed. So here are the the doctor and the um, and his servant, who is this one legged peg legged guy, um, are are sealing him in the coffin and. Um, Taking and the, do it. There's this really cool scene where um, inside um, Alan's body, looking out um, from the viewport port of the coffin, and, and you see everything walk by from this really bizarre viewpoint. And as the as you separate a bit from that scene, Alan is, is his shadow is sitting on a bench and it fades to his real body. So you ha- assume that he's dreaming, but it doesn't seem like a dream. But Alan awakes, fortunately, right next to a graveyard where this uh, where this servant we see earlier is uh, digging up a grave of an old woman who's um, just preserved. Um, they push a stake through her to um, to kill her again, uh, or to cool. They said something really cool uh, earlier about um, like to track her with the land or something. Uh, but some, something of the sort to, in order to um, kill her forever and to free and uh, Leon uh, feels her soul has been freed. The and we see the wooden wooden legged servant fall down the stairs um, and it becomes killed. The doctor gets is trapped in this in this horrifying mill scene, <laughs> um, and Alan and Brazel find their way magically. Like yeah, that's that's, yeah. The, that's the plot. Yeah. That's the plot, and, and uh, certainly 
uh, though you've done it immense justice, this is not a movie that really is about the plot. So I, I you know, <laughs> you did great because it's it's a hard movie to summarize because it's not really about the stuff that happens necessarily. Yeah, no, it's absolutely gorgeous, but like what's going on is not important at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's just how it looks. Yeah, <laughs> I'd say I I don't think that's I, that, I'd say that's a bit reductive to say. Well, sure, I'm just making a goof. Good. Cool. So, what do we think about uh, about Vampire? I really liked it. To me, it called to mind uh, the first film that came to mind was Meshes of the Afternoon by uh, Maya Darren. But it has that sort of dreamlike quality that you'll find in all of those weird Freudian related movies that come out later. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's as we kind of talked about. It's not about the plot, kind of like really what happens. It's all about creating feelings. And I think the first fifteen twenty minutes of the movie, where you don't really have an introduction, you're just sort of like following this dude around. It's all just so amazingly uncanny and spooky, and very very adept at putting that sense of slightly confused dread into you. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it really follows that dream logic well, where... where that's the word everyone uses, yeah, the, yeah. The, that it's dreamlike or like a nightmare, and that's 100% true. Yeah, where he's just, like, showing up places, and he's like, I guess I'm here now, exploring. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you get these really cool things on... Um, I really loved the on-screen effects of, so like, the, the, the skulls moving in, in some direction or another, something in the background, uh, you know, changing changing uh, just ever so subtly to, like, make you a little nervous without outright saying, like, you should be spooked right now. Um, so for a little background on the movie Vampire, it was uh, directed by a Danish director named Carl Theodor Dreyer, uh, and he's most famous for a movie he made called The Passion of Joan of Arc. And that's the movie he made immediately before this, uh, and he had made it, I believe, at the behest of the French government. In 1920, uh, Joan of Arc had been canonized, actually. She had become a saint, and she was made the patron saint of France, or one of them. And so it was sort of a, this nationalistic thing for France to want to make this sort of epic movie about uh, Joan of Arc. And so uh, I've never seen this movie, but to my understanding, it's considered to be you know, uh, an incredibly well-made, well-performed landmark film, but uh, I can't personally vouch for it. Um, but uh, much like uh, Vampire would be, The Passion of Joan of Arc was heavily cut uh, and not terribly well-received upon its release. Dreyer was part of sort of a, a burgeoning European art cinema movement at, around this time that would continue to grow from here on out, but at this time was relatively small. Uh, sort of Jean Cocteau was the uh, one of the premier sort of art filmmakers, uh, and he's most famous for a film called, I believe it's called uh, Blood of the Poet. And uh, also you had Luis Buñuel, who uh, was a Spanish director who had collaborated uh, with Salvador Dali on a short film, an experimental short film called uh, Le Chien d'Andalou. Yeah. Uh, Classic. Uh, <laughs> uh, film nerds, film nerds, what up? Slicing up <laughs> uh, Un Chien d'Andalou, I'm sorry, uh, which is the, the dog of Andalus, uh, or a dog of Andalus. Yeah, so he was sort of palling around with these guys. I don't know if they knew each other personally, but artistically palling around. And in 1927, uh, with the immense success of the play Dracula, we keep coming back to this, uh, <laughs> Dreyer decided that he wanted to make a, uh, a vampire picture. Uh, and so he took direct inspiration from a collection of short stories by a guy named Sheridan Le Fanu. And the collection was called In a Glass Darkly. And so the two stories that Vampire draws direct inspiration from, uh, one is called The Room and the Dragon Volant, which is uh, about a premature burial. Uh, and then the other one, the much more famous one, is called Carmilla, which that's the lesbian vampire story. Uh, and that's a pre-Dracula uh, piece of vampire fiction. So this is the much, much more classy adaptation of that story. I know... Um, you say the lesbians aren't classy? Uh, <laughs> well, no. In the, in the late 70s, when Hammer 
was really in their decline. They started making these really sleazy exploitation movies, and they made uh, a whole series of um, uh, movies based on Carmilla. Um, uh, I doubt we're going to watch uh, watch those movies, but I thought I'd shout them out. Um, Bonus episode. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Bonus episode. Um, and uh, so Dre are continued working in France, and uh, the film is set in uh, the village of Cortempia, uh, and actually he shot the film in the real-life French village of Cortempia. I don't know if it was ever lorded over by a vampire, but uh, <laughs> I can only assume that it was. He was also a big fan of casting non-actors in major roles. Uh, most of the cast was just kind of people that he found on the street. Most of them never went on to act again. Uh, yeah. The guy who plays the main character, he was just a, uh, a French n- rich noble dude who was like, if you let me be in your movie, I will give you all the money for it. And that's what they did. <laughs> yeah, uh, and that's a, one of many sort of odd similarities between this movie and Freaks is that uh, it's largely a non-professional cast, uh, similarly not well-received, uh, a long sort of disclaimer uh, card at, uh, at the beginning of the film, the beginning of both, both films. Not a disclaimer, but sort of a, uh, you know, an explanatory text uh, at the beginning of the, each film. Uh, there's, there's a lot of sort of interesting parallels you could draw between them. Yeah, no, to go back to, go to uh, Carmilla a little bit, I um, was doing a little bit of reading and, like, uh, how um, unusual of a vampire story this, this movie Vampire is, because um, it's, this is one of the only, um, only instances of a, of a female vampire, uh, and so you, you get this, this woman vampire going after young ladies, which is the, the key, like, um, undertone, lesbian undertone there is, um, traditionally you see the, uh, you see the vampire going after someone they are they are sexually attracted to as part of the um of, as part of like being a vampire as a whole. So you can almost like with that knowledge you can almost go back and see where like these beautiful young ladies are um how that attraction might make does make some sense but it's it's so underplayed at work yeah. really not played at all in the movie that um I didn't get pick up on it until after the after I uh, did some research after watching. Yeah, I mean, if you if you take sort of the, it's a very old interpretation to take you know the vampire as a, a sexual metaphor or to you know imbue it with sort of um, you know a, a, a meaning concerning sexuality, uh, and and I think you're absolutely right, and that's really the only sort of reading you can do of this that's like really sapphic because. Like you say, um, it's just not really there. Otherwise, you have to, you know it's it's a pretty deep subtext. If that's uh, something you want to take away from it, yeah. There's uh, in fact the the vampire in the film is very enigmatic and not not much of a not a character we really spend any time with or that has a personality that we see. Yeah, I kind of I kind of like that though. I liked how sparely the the vampire showed up. It was good. Yeah. Barnes, you were going to say something. Well, well, there is kind of like a... I don't know, maybe I'm reading too far into this, but there is kind of like a, a sexual element after uh, Leon gets bitten the second time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's reading through the book, and it, it describes uh, the vampires... A vampire infects its victim with lust. Yeah. It means you know, it means a lust for blood, but the book just says it infects him with lust. Yeah. And then uh, when you see um, Leone in her... Leon? Leon in her bed... Her face does some things that can be described as. Uh, uh, <laughs> she makes a vampire face. <laughs> strange faces, and a lot of them kind of look pretty sexual. Maybe I'm imagining that, but um, I think that that's a an interpretation, uh, a valid interpretation. I mean, uh, I love that vampire face. Love that vampire face she makes. Yeah, as you mentioned, uh, the the. Actor playing the main character was a French nobleman named Nicolas de Gunsberg, who's credited as I think Julian West. <laughs> Is that true? Yeah, he yeah. Uh, he picked his name because it they wouldn't have to like translate it. For some reason, I don't really know why they would have in the beginning anyway, but apparently yeah. Julian West is a very uh, convenient name for German, French, and American markets. 
he has sort of a, even though he's only in the movie because he funded its creation, uh, he has, I think, a really effective performance, uh, which uh, I think almost everyone in the movie does, uh, despite being uh, non, non-professional non actors. Uh, even though sort of most of what he does is wander around looking confused, he's got a great face for it. He looks so <laughs> stupid. Uh, oh, that's what that means. <laughs> Did he look like Buster Keaton to anyone else? Did he look just like yeah. Buster Keaton to anyone yeah, else? Yeah, the big doe eyes. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Yeah. The long, yeah, sad face. I, I yeah. think the the other sort of obvious famous person parallel uh, in terms of appearances, H.P. Lovecraft. Um, uh, yeah. And uh, I, I think the story, interestingly, because Lovecraft absolutely was not an influence on this, but it has a very Lovecraftian feel in terms of the sort of looming horror, uh, and the guy just sort of looks like looks like Lovecraft. So that's interesting to me. Especially the beginning. Yeah, especially the, the beginning of the film has that feeling of uh, sort of... Um, like, bored aristocrat becomes obsessed with the occult uh, and wanders into terrible situation. Uh, there's a lot of really great uh, visual metaphors in the beginning of that film. Um, you know, you have the, the the sort of farmer whose face you don't see with the scythe uh, getting onto a boat, which is like yeah. the, the ferry. A ferry, which is like the most... Death metaphor, death metaphor <laughs> thing you could maybe conceive <laughs> of. And then, uh, and then, of course, you have them uh, returning to the light uh, on a ferry later on. Uh, <laughs> so maybe we could talk about that, about the ending of the film when we get there. But. Yeah, you, you kind of get this, in, this uh, kind of direct uh, situation because the, the extended title is um, Vampi- Vampire, the Dream of Alan Gray. So you kind of you get this like idea that maybe it is just a dream. He's just mm-hmm. staying at this inn, and that's and he's just yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think for the time, it uh, very ambitiously uh, is it's ambitiously ambiguous about what is real and what isn't. Uh, that's not something I'm used to seeing in films of this period. I don't. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I think that's very interesting. Yeah, no, that that distinct dream sequence, definitely one of my favorite s- series of shots <laughs> oh, it's, uh, that it's I've seen really recently. Cool. Yeah. It's really cool. And uh, that sequence, obviously, is really memorable, uh, and it does feel sort of separate from the rest of the movie, which I think is, in part at least, because it was based on a different short story and just sort of put in. But, uh, you know, it's definitely a really compelling sequence it's you know I've really never seen anything like that until I watched this movie uh, of course we have um, I think a lot of the film's look can be attributed to the cinematographer uh, Rudolf Matei who had also worked with um, a Dreyer on the passion of Joan of Arc uh, he chose or Dreyer and he chose to shoot the film uh, through a piece of gauze to give it that soft focus, um, sort of dreamlike quality. Uh, and there's a lot of sort of interesting tracking shots. Um, you know, I liked especially in the beginning when he's when the camera moves around, slowly, slowly, slowly moves around this the room of the inn where he's staying. Uh, and it gives you this real sense of sort of unease that, you know, even though this is a, you know, a normal-looking situation, that something is wrong and something's going to, going to become, you know, going to go wrong here. Well, let's talk about the shadows. Let's talk about those shadows. Yeah. Let's talk about the shadows. (laughs) It's my song for you. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Thanks, dude. Uh, (laughs) uh, Yeah, we first, I think before we see the moving shadows, we see a reflection that, uh, a reflection of a person walking that there is no person to cast it. And then, of course, we see the shadows moving on their own. Uh, which uh, so cool. Yeah, that's the first time that was like, oh, okay, this movie grabbed me. You know, I'm I want to find out what's up with this now. Yeah, I was so excited that the um, the henchman, I guess, is probably his best title. Um, yeah. When he, you know, he's he's sitting down, and then then his shadow comes up behind him and then attaches itself to a wall. You cut away for a second, but then you see him again, and you know, his shadow follows him off screen. So cool. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It's. It's uh, really as a as a visual trick. It's just like ah, that's yeah. awesome. Ah. Also, the, the first time you see um, the moving shadows, 
Uh, it, it's the shadow of the uh, the henchman, but he's got a peg leg, so it's a shadow of a man cast by nothing that's also not walking right. Yeah. It's just like a man yeah. who was wrong. Yeah. And I think huh. speaking of, of the, the henchman, obviously he has one leg and he's wearing what appears to be a, a soldier's uniform. Uh, and I think that one interesting thing this film does is give a little, little glimpse into that world of sort of inter interwar France where you would have a lot of people who, you know, who were veterans who had been, you know, maimed yeah, during World War One, And I think that that's supposed to be the impression we're supposed to get of this guy, even though he never speaks. The Doctor looks really cool. I like yeah, his look. Yeah, he I, interestingly, uh, he does remind me a little bit of Van Helsing from 1931 Dracula. Probably yeah. a total accident, but uh, they definitely have that same sort of, like, old codger feel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that uh that 19th century uh uh mustache I love on him. Such mustaches still lived in 1932. Uh for someone who wasn't an actor, um he does an excellent job like just looking sinister in every scene he's in. Mhm. I, I mean his mustache helps a lot. Yeah, and then uh when he dies by being uh buried alive in flour? Uh, yeah. That's that's pretty wild. Thanks. Also, I just want to put out there it's a little uh, non believable because he could have just stuck his fucking face outside the grate and, like, <laughs> been fine. Like, maybe a little dusty, but, like, fine. Yeah, and instead, he was like, oh, I'm dying because I'm covered in this thing I have the ability to remove from the space in which it is. Alex, yes. are you saying that this film is not abiding by the constraints of realism? <laughs> I'm saying that I believe this was a documentary until that moment. <laughs> and the events depicted happened in real time. I was so surprised that he wound up being buried in the flower. I was I was totally expecting it was the the guy coming down the stairs to like set it to explode the flower because you know you get this combustion when that like that perfect air particle uh, mm -hmm. setup because you know, he had his he had his fucking um, lantern and uh, just I was I was hoping for like a spark or something but it was much. It was a very different sort of dramatic to watch him to see him become covered in flour and have clearly like swallowed it and just, and, like, just died. <laughs> I, I think I said this to Barnes after we watched it, but um, I can only imagine that someone writing the movie had worked in a flour mill uh, <laughs> and had seen the chamber where they unloaded the flour and uh, imagined dying in there. Um, <laughs> having having worked in a factory, I can tell you that anywhere you can die, at one point or another, you imagine dying there. Uh, mm -hmm. At least I did. I don't know. <laughs> uh, maybe that's not normal. But um, I mean, I imagine dying as much as I possibly can. <laughs> also, another sort of interesting parallel, um, this time to Dracula, is that the vampire staking scene is sort of a weird anticlimax. Um, it just sort of happens in both films. Uh, and, and in this one, it's not even our, you know, stated protagonist who does it. It's uh, the unnamed servant man uh, who actually goes and breaks the curse. And we have our main character dream about being buried alive, which is interesting. Yeah, I thought the staking scene in this worked way better because, like, you still get the crazy giant face thing after, and I thought that was a better climax than just, oh, we killed it. Done. We're sleeping. <laughs> We're good. So, also, she turned into a skeleton. And skeleton oh, yeah. As we that, it was so cool. That shot was awesome. <laughs> I'm going to get excited every time we see a skeleton, so just, just fair, fair <laughs> warning. Uh, yeah, so this film was shot entirely on location, uh, which is interesting. Apparently, the actors were all made to live in the manor house. Uh, and it sucked. I think living in a French manor house would be cool, but they didn't <laughs> like it, apparently. Oh, that'd be so spooky. Yeah! Spooky. Anything else to talk about with Vampire? That we um, I think we should talk about the uh, the sound, or lack thereof. Because, I mean, yeah. technically, it's a sound film, but for a lot of it, it really, really feels like an old-school silent film, because you, you got those inner titles, and people are just, like walking through places and no one's saying anything. And I think it's, I mean, I know they did it for practicality because they were recording it in three languages and more more lines meant more work for them. 
it it just makes it really effective when someone does talk, when someone breaks you out of that silent movie mold. And I liked it. I thought it worked really well. After a couple yeah. weeks of movies where people are jibber jabbering a lot and over explaining everything, this movie was very refreshing. Yeah, it, it gives Absolutely. it that that dreamlike quality where a lot of the dialogue in this is sort of um, uh, or, or what dialogue there is, a lot of it is not terribly clear. Sometimes yeah. it's you know it's yeah. it's sort of this obscure thing that that doesn't clarify anything. It just sort of makes you more like feel like something is off, uh, which is definitely part of that nightmarish quality. Um, uh, and yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's extremely effective. Whether or not it was just for practical reasons, uh, it's an extremely effective technique. I loved how everyone seemed to deliver their lines facing away from the camera, so they could <laughs> jump whatever language they wanted. That was great. Yeah. That's that's smart filmmaking right there. <laughs> I would like to talk for a second about my favorite line from the movie, uh, where the uh, main character shouts to the doctor that his blood is gone, and he goes, "Nonsense! Your blood isn't right where it should be." <laughs> I just like that a lot. So there it is. It's good bedside um, manner. Yeah, and I like something that's really creepy about this movie is unlike in Dracula where we see sort of the hypnotism uh, of the vampire firsthand with Renfield uh, and so much of the movie is about that, here we don't know how far, you know, how much control this vampire has over the people in this town. Like, obviously, the one-legged soldier and the doctor are uh, sort of in her employ, but, um, you know, is the innkeeper? What about the creepy old man? What about anyone? Anyone could be, you know, waiting to stab an unwary traveler in the back uh, in this town, which is sort of a... It it gives it this paranoid feeling uh, that films we've seen before haven't had necessarily... Uh, just because it's not, you know, there isn't one monster, uh, and it's not clear who who is who, you know? Yeah, you get that, and, like, okay, yeah, you get that, and, like, the sense that nowhere you are is safe, as you get his his room in the inn that, you know, this this, like, this guy just breaks into, and you, uh, you know, you get into this house where you're just invited to stay, like, oh, you should stay. Or and <laughs> he he does it I guess yeah. um, and like none of all of these rooms while you you get a you don't get a ton of like people just going where they shouldn't be um, you get you um, you know that it's an option and that is spooky in its own right yeah I, I sort of feel like um, uh, this reminded me a lot of later horror films that rely a lot on paranoia, like uh, Rosemary's Baby, or even to an extent Suspiria, where, you know, um, Rosemary's Baby especially, where, you know, you have this character who enters into a world where just nothing can be trusted, and and the senses do not accurately report. You know, there's there's no way, I don't know, maybe I'm... I'm Blabbering here, but uh, no, no, no. I you are correct, and I agree with you. There's cool. that, yeah. There's that sort of narrative structure of the audience being unable to be sure if what they're seeing is real, and it's a yeah. weirdly meta feeling. Yeah, I mean, it's that's in a very, very effective uh, part of this movie. A lot of this movie is effective. Uh, that's that's my number one adjective I would use. Is <laughs> it all works. Um, something that I think was very interesting was the part of the vampire mythos in this film that I was not aware of coming into it, which was the idea that a vampire tries to get their victims to kill themselves. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting touch. Yeah, I found that terrifying. (laughs) You know, as as someone uh, who has uh, struggled with similar thoughts in the past, it is uh, terrifying to think that I might be just Vampire Spawn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and this is, uh, speaking of Rosemary's Baby, this is 
I think the first movie we've really had that deals with fear of the devil, uh, even if he's a minor player in this uh, in this movie, uh, you know, there's been sort of religious fear that we've seen before, especially in Dracula. Uh, but this is the first one where um, a lot of sort of the well, I guess that's also true in in Dracula, but it feels like the idea of hell and the devil is very present in this movie. It is. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. I think the summary of this episode is someone makes a good point, everyone agrees silently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're you're not wrong. You're not wrong. <laughs> I can't uh, uh, can't fight that. So good work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anything else we want to talk about with uh, Vampire? So the real question here is: Do you think you would recommend it to someone? Oh fuck! I just uh, got big footed. Stole that shit from you, motherfucker. Uh, well, Alex, uh, to answer your question, thank you very much for asking, by the way. Uh, oh, anytime. Anything uh, for you, Thad. To answer your question, I would recommend it to a fan of horror films. I would recommend it to a fan of art films. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to a general audience um, just because it is, like I said, it, I, I found this movie effective. It does everything well. It does everything it sets out to do. I liked it a lot, but I'm not sure that um, Johnny Moviegoer would necessarily be that interested in it. Yeah, I, I, this is like the sort of movie I would like watch with, watch with, watch a couple times, then watch it with subtitles, or not subtitles, with commentary, and like enjoy the <laughs> shit out of it, but never tell anyone about it unless they were like really into movies. So. Yeah, I would say if you're a big fan of the weird art house films, uh, you know, if you're a big David Lynch fan or anyone who sort of likes those Freudian, strange, uncanny films, it's 100% worth checking out. It's gorgeous. If you like film history, it's great. If you want to sort of feel spooked, but then a little bored, then a little bit spooked again, <laughs> then like, maybe. Uh, but... You know, if if your your favorite horror movie is Jurassic Park, then maybe don't watch it. <laughs> I I wonder how big of the horror market is people who want to be spooked, then bored, then spooked again. <laughs> <laughs> me? Maybe uh, just me. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, I don't know. You guys kind of covered it. It's it's artsy, but it's really good. It's the type of movie I would have forced one of my high school friends to watch and then sat there awkwardly while they hated it. <laughs> um, story of my life. Uh, oh. But no, it's it's real good. But I don't know if I'd generally recommend it. Barnes? Yeah, uh, I, I think I agree with you guys. Uh, I would add an extremely strange and highly specific uh, additional recommendation. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're into any sort of uh, tabletop or role-playing game, and you'd like... <laughs> To get excellent ideas for ways to build spookiness and dread, uh, watch this movie, because mm. if I run a horror game, I'm stealing that Shadows thing. Okay, what up? I think we should, uh, one of our Patreon levels should be just releasing campaigns based on horror <laughs> movies. For, uh, solely for White Wolf games. Oh. <laughs> You do this to punish me, don't you? <laughs> yes. And we, every month we can also do one Jeep Forum LARP. <laughs> uh, no one's going to know what that means. But, uh, all right, awesome, guys. So I think that just about wraps up our movie discussion. Before we get going, though, I did want to advertise, hopefully by the time this episode airs, we're going to have our Patreon up. Uh, so, guys, if you like the show out there in podcast land, uh, and you think it's worth paying us. Which I, it is. Which it is. Uh, please feel free to uh, become a patron. Uh, we're going to come up with really cool, fun rewards for patrons. Uh, we might have stuff like episode outtakes, bonus episodes, maybe where we talk about contemporary stuff, elaborate um, role-playing game campaigns we all participate in. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're just going uh, to air episodes of Harmontown. <laughs> uh, you're gonna get bootleg copies of uh, of stuff we steal. Uh, it's gonna be awesome. Uh, no, you're not gonna get that. And what's you know really uh, exciting about Patreon is that it's a, a way that you can help us make our show better. Uh, for instance, uh, our first goal 
uh, is we're all going to buy uh, matching varsity jackets and pose in them. Uh, and then our second goal uh, is we're going to join the TCM Wine Club and drink Frankenwine brought to you by the Coppola Winery. And then our third goal is we're going to buy Alex a microphone. So um, after we do the important stuff, we'll do that. <laughs> Guys, I'm so excited because I'm so poor. Um, so if you if you want to alleviate Alex's grinding poverty, uh, become you a You want to alleviate Alex's grinder poverty, too. Hit me up. <laughs> His DMs are open. <laughs> Just slide on in. So, uh, guys, if you are out there in podcast land and you want to listen along with us, I think next week we're going to be watching two more films from 1932. If I'm not mistaken, we're going to be watching The Mummy, uh, starring Boris Karloff and directed by our old pal, cinematographer Karl Frund, who contributed to uh, Dracula. And then we're going to be watching our first independent American film starring Bela Lugosi, White Zombie. So, uh, any other uh, comments, guys, before we go? Any uh, well wishes that you want to give to our fans? I didn't know this was an option. <laughs> I'm so excited. I'm so scared. Uh, well, I would on like that to note. Bye, folks. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to wish uh, that everybody listening to this podcast uh, finds five dollars in their pocket they forgot was there. Oh, that's a good wish. That's oh, thanks. A well wish. It's very sweet. Well, guys, I think that just about wraps it up. <laughs> <laughs> thanks again for joining us uh, have a great evening it's always a pleasure at least I have fun so I hope you do too so uh, until next time guys take it easy bye, bye. bye. good chat still a ghost